0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the episode of Elixir Mix. I'm your host, Alan Weima. Today, we have on the panel, Adi Iyengar. Hello. hello. And our special guest, Everett Thank Griffiths. Thank you for having me. Yes, yeah. you're right. And today, we're going to be talking all about documentation, your favorite topic.
1: Yeah, this is one of my uh, soapbox topics.
2: Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, Once again, that's topendevs.com. Why
0: don't we start from the beginning? Like, what got you into documentation? Was it a bad experience?
1: Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? Like, I think any developer knows, like, just coming up through the trenches, it's the exception rather than the rule that you've got something that, like, works as advertised that you can actually plug in and actually have work. The far greater experience for me and, and students that I've taught in boot camps has been that mournful solitary experience of like trying to make something work and it just does not even begin to like look like the picture on the box you know so that that frustration is it's almost like an origin story we are like this is something that can be improved and uh my mother was a teacher so i feel like there's an educational component to that and uh just being somewhat introverted and just like observing how people communicate I think you could see like there are multiple opportunities to improve how quickly you're able to onboard somebody and and communicate an idea and get some results out of something and and software is one vehicle for that.
0: Yeah, I mean, documentation is tricky, right? Because nobody likes to write and it's always tricky to try to keep the docs up with the code. I mean, how do you kind of balance this act where you want to add new features, but then you don't want to like, I don't know, you understand what I'm saying? Because it's very difficult to keep it up to speed.
1: It it is, but I don't I disagree that that nobody likes to write it. I mean, I like to write it just because it is such a waste of effort. Like I don't know how many times you've seen packages or used them where it like seems to do exactly what you need. Like you're you're floating around in open water, there might be sharks, and you're reaching for something and oh my gosh, you find the thing that seems to do exactly what you need, but you can't make it work. And to me that is just absolutely soul crushing. There's so many things like that. So like Having good documentation, like it's an observable fact to me, that there are some things out there—products, services, businesses—that exist not because of any great efficiencies or the fact that they're doing like they built a better mousetrap. It's because they had documentation or presented it in a way in which it was comprehensible to someone else. Like one classic example is like the the VHS uh, recorder. I think you know Sony came out with this versus the the far superior Beta video recording system, but. Like Sony just could like market that better and present it better and just so it made a little bit more sense because the the beta controls this is dating me a bit like those, those were a lot harder to operate. So it's like, okay, you got this thing's easier. You, you can just pick it up and use it, right? That's huge. So being able to like clear away the obstacles from any code and like bring your hard work into into use is huge. and I, I can't get over how many developers I know, like smart developers like way smarter than me, who like slayed amazing dragons and they can't document themselves out of a paper bag so nobody like very few people can make use of it it it, it gobsmacks me every time i see it so it it, it is something that this is a rant and i've told students this in, in the boot camps up top but like our modern day version of the burning of Alec- the library at alexandra right if you remember from history class where this this library in ancient egypt burned down and with it like we lost some people calculate thousands of years of civilization because this was like the only copy of these hand-produced books that existed in the world and when that burned you lost all that i feel like we have the same type of regression or delay in society one missing readme page at a time where you've got all this work going in to do all these amazing things and nobody tells you how they work or how to use them
0: yeah, I don't know. For me, I mean, I feel like I can't really document because I'm not too sure what I want to document. Yeah. I guess, I mean, I need to approach this similar to how I approach like when I'm writing my code, where it's like I like to write the test first and then I know how I want to work with it. So I guess if I want to document my stuff, maybe I should try a similar approach where it's like, okay, if I wanted to use this thing how would I want to know how to use it? I'm trying to start yeah. to think about what would be a way to do it. It's,
1: to me, I always approach it from examples. And the more I think about it, the more examples are the only thing. Or there's two things you need. I, I wrote about this in, in an article, which <laughs> maybe nobody read, but there's two things that I think documentation needs. One is examples, examples, examples. If you're like talking about theory or like what led you, like who kept boring, you know, like, that's good for you. And it's great, good that you thought about all that stuff. To get you into the mindset of authoring some code but for everybody else nobody gives a crap it's not important it's all about how do i use this thing to do the the task i need that is the first and most important thing but the second thing is actually subtly i think more important in a weird way is having an effective feedback loop and this i think you can make a direct uh, analog comparison to biological processes right evolution you just have an iterative process and you have a feedback loop that failed that failed this works you can like make these incremental improvements and eventually Boom, you've got things getting more complicated, life evolves, like all that type of stuff. It's like that makes a lot of sense. So, how do you do it? I think you should start with examples. Like, what is it you're trying to do? If you're writing your code to do something, write out the example. You know what the interface is that you need to do, you know where you're going to plug that in to do the thing that it is. Start there, right? And Elixir, I think, is really well suited for this because it's functional. Just that alone is huge because you don't have to have this like huge backstory about how to set up the system and set up the state to make use of a particular function. You can just kind of come in uh, more cleanly and say, look, here's this, here's the input, here's the output, this is how you do that thing. That alone is huge. But the fact that they have also built into Elixir all the uh, the documentation processing where you have a single mix command to produce an output, like that just makes it so easy. So that, that's one really good way to maintain it. But again, the the, the critical uh, drivers of all this is having the examples so someone can use it and then having that feedback loop.
0: I mean, you can't make examples for every single situation, right? So you have to also have no. some explanation about certain things. Like let's let's talk about keyword arguments, right? I mean, those could be very long and complicated.
1: They could, but I mean, you should document them so they know what they are. Like, I this software has too many examples. Said no developer ever. I mean, mic Drop. Like anybody who argues about this, I it's like, w- why are you holding back on us, man? Like, are you afraid someone's going to actually use your code, right? Like, I I got this is like one of the things that really turned me off about Go. Was when I was learning that. It's like that that community. And I might be upsetting some people there, but they were like really precious about like the way that the documentation must be written. It's like they would like talk about the theories of things, and it was really hard to dig down through like the way that that code gets dispatched. Like the execution flow in that was a little bit unusual. I had a hard time following it. And like they were adamant, like this thing should not be documented. Like an example was that's that's like second rate stuff for some tutorial. And like I literally like attacked like people were following me out of the forums to like other like stack overflow and stuff like assaulting me there because I had dared question the legitimacy of their docs. And they just refused to put examples in. I put up PRs even they were like, nope, this is absolutely not acceptable. And to me, it was like, wow, what a dick move this total waste of effort, like all this code that would have been useful, even the language itself. Like ultimately, that's one of the things that pushed me into Elixir was like, well, this is a pain right and i could get on my soapbox a little bit more here but when i was driving my own dev teams as a freelancer like we had some like free time to like do a project i don't remember exactly what it was for but i remember we had to like parse some uh, excel files some like csvs or tab separated whatever they were for something and it was like no one they didn't the the client didn't care what language we use or whatnot so i was like god this might be fun i'll have you know had a couple guys working under me and i was like these are all like reasonably competent guys maybe not senior devs, but they were like competent and had experience in a couple languages. So like I had one group of them like work on it in Go and somebody else like worked on it in Ruby and Python and like we were using PHP at the time. But like so many of those train wrecked because of the docs. Like the Go guys, I, I don't know, man. Like they even came around, I didn't even ask them. They're like, well, I figured out how to do it in Ruby. It was like burn that isn't like just absolutely scorching feedback for your docs. I don't know what is like that. Actually, I could put a number on what that cost. Right. And that's kind of an experiment in a jar. But I'm convinced if anybody had the balls to do it, like at a company, you could absolutely like clock how much man hours uh, you're you're spending money on to do a project. And if you measure, you use that number to measure how effective or ineffective your documentation was.
3: I guess one thing about what you're saying, I can see where Go folks might be coming from, whether I agree with them completely or it's just, I think the more examples and more documentation you have, it's, it's more... Stuff people have to maintain as they make changes to it, and that's where Elixir and Rust is pretty good with the doc test and stuff, right? Like Mm. your doc documentation breaks if you make changes. Yeah, for sure. Consistent with the documentation. I I don't think Go has anything like that. So again, I don't agree with their. That's where they're coming from, but I can see adding the extra maintenance, right? Uh, Yeah. time to uh, making changes, I, I can kind of see what they're coming
1: from. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see that too because it is a pain to maintain that stuff. And so to the extent that you have a system that facilitates that, it makes it easier, right? Like having the doc tests is nice because you could just run it, like either it works or it didn't. The, my contention mainly is like, if you're not bothering to upkeep that, it's really a disservice. Cause if you went through all the trouble to write this stuff, like, is it some secret society where like, we have to like swear allegiance to something that in order to know how to learn the the secret yeah. shibboleth to, your, to use your package? Like, come on. Yeah. You know, we're not the masons. Like we're trying to like write code. And if you're, you're, you're putting up that wall artificially out of some precious sense of like like you're not smart enough to know how to write documentation. I think that's really the nerve I hit was like, look, you're a genius. You wrote this thing. It's awesome. I can't even begin to figure out how you did that. But for, you know, for effing out loud, just put in an example to help somebody else get on board with this. And they're like, oh, that's kind of the, that, my read on it. It's like they, they took it as like some sort of like negative feedback on their intelligence or something. But I don't know. In any case. I find it hard to justify that. Like, any, in any real-world sense, if you don't have that example of how to, like, get somebody on board, it's just, like, you're wasting time. And, like, why waste everyone's time?
0: I think the one documentation I really, really hate the most is Python. Because it's like, if you want to know something, you have to read a whole book about it. Yeah. It drives me absolutely crazy.
1: Python is not good, in my opinion, either. I, I really, like, soured on it. Like, I get that it's, like, feels like it's a it's an easier learning curve for non developers so you've invested in all these python packages particularly in data science stuff just massive man hours in like doing kind of busy work and it happens to be couched in python but like to me that's a little bit arbitrary because like if you really looked at some of these problems like what would be the best language to solve these Python may not be your, your top pick for that, but that's just because it's a little bit more accessible for the non-coders. I feel like it's it's sort of funneled off a lot of uh, c- contributions. So, eh. but yeah, the docs, like, ugh, rough.
0: But even non-coders, I mean, they want examples, right? They don't want to read 100%. a bunch of stuff. They just want to just do stuff. I can't imagine a beginner like, oh, I want to know the theory about like print, like who, who cares? Yeah, just, yeah. I, I just want to, know, what can I, can I put an integer in there or not?
1: yeah 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 i again i am surprised at that but i'm also surprised by like more senior developers who i know like who have absolutely the capacity to like understand where and how to use something and they'll plow their ways through like just barbed wire trenches and like claw their ways through some like horrible little package and figure out how to use it and i'm like well did you send a pr because like this like this was wrong that was the worst one is like you have wrong examples or like something that's not correct. It's like, did you send a PR to fix that? Oh, no, I didn't do that. (laughs) It's like, leave it for the next guy. It's like, oh, thanks. That's helpful. So yeah, there is a a massive opportunity to to like improve the communication. Like one of the articles I wrote on uh, Medium was about how coding is easy. The communication is what's hard. And I feel like documentation is one facet of that, where if you're able to communicate what it is you're trying to do and how to do it, it's like all these little nuanced things sometimes. And uh, it's interesting, just like observing, like how people tend to approach these things and how they get out of them.
0: One thing I thought was quite interesting is that you have an article about how you how your system kind of works with like message passing, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was an interesting one we came up with. Because uh, this is a this came out of writing an Elixir system, and it's it's not public, but it, it's a it's a cool thing that we've worked on over the past two years. At my current company, Body, and we we're doing like massive data scraping at scale. And it's funny to me, it's just like observing the fact that we're accomplishing more with like a couple of Elixir developers than we did at my last company that was kind of doing some scraping. And we weren't doing anywhere near the volume, like not even a fraction of the volume with about 30 Python and Node developers. And it's like, wow, what? How do you explain that? Right. And one of the things in that case is like Elixir just has all this stuff out of the box where you're like, oh, the process died. Restart. Like you got the supervisors. It's like passing stuff between like you don't have with Python. Like you had to reinvent all those wheels. And I'm sorry, like Python sucks for web development. I don't care who I flame with that. Like Flask was written as a joke. It's good for like educational purposes, but like actually using it in practice, like I've done it. It took like way longer to come up with stuff to get parity with some other systems. Like, you know, Rails might be slow for a uh, concurrency and stuff like it it's it's got great tooling so like okay why not use that it was built for that or php i got php is great for the web stuff right and the python stuff we ended up like chasing our tails with all that anyway so we wrote this system uh, we wanted kind of a a job queue that basically we sort of evolved out of broadway because uh broadway we started with, but we, we ended up like having to like tweak stuff, and eventually we sort of sanded it down to more gen stage, which is, uh, for those unfamiliar, it's it's sort of gives you a, a structure for passing chunks of messages. So in the Elixir processes, you can have the mailboxes you send stuff to, which is pretty handy, but adding gen stage on top of that gives you a little bit more control and processing stuff in chunks so we like wrote that we pulled out the amazon back end which greatly simplified things again it just relied on native message passing and we ended up with this kind of ephemeral job queue in order to handle all the scraping of different sites and without having like being cognizant of api thresholds and like not wanting to overwhelm any of them so we could like drip feed these these processes through the system over time and one of the biggest challenges with that is just visibility because you have like all these pieces, and you kind of need to know like what happens if I put you know something at the top of this machine, where does it come out at the end? It's just the visibility was tough, and we're like, wait a minute, this is all configuration based. Why not just render a chart like in the documentation? And that ended up working beautifully because you could just put your code right in the, in the module doc. It runs at compile time. There might be some caveats if you needed to do something different at runtime, but basically, like the the mermaid charts worked really well there's some bugs in it but like at least you could see all the components and you could see how they connect it was like boom like as soon as you change the configuration the docs updated so like there was like no effort in maintaining the docs it's like that is a picture literally of what's running in production so i don't know like that was great so like just poking at at mermaid docs was was cool and that To tie it into the more recent article I I poked at uh, with ecto schemas, because that's another area where it's like, sometimes you want to see like what's the database doing. And you guys have probably all experienced this when you've got database changing over time. Like sometimes somebody's maintaining a document sitting on a shared drive somewhere up in Jira, like whatever, and it may not be up to date with what's actually in the database. Right. So that's, Again, it's a red flag. So, like, how do you have documentation that stays up to date without you having to go and, and maintain this thing off in a galaxy far, far away? Well, you can inspect the ECTO schemas and come up with usable documentation from that. There's no guarantee that that's exactly what's in the database, but it's as far as the code is concerned, that's your interface, and it, and it usually is 99% accurate. And that's been useful, too. There's a, there's a couple things I'd like to see in the, the Mermaid documentation or the Mermaid charts to, like, improve some of the relations. But generally, like, that's all been a huge lift just to getting visibility on what our app is and does.
0: The Mermaid charts, right? I mean, did you use this before or how did you actually find out about Mermaid charts?
1: No, I just Googling the hell. It was like, I remember from my consulting days, I would found some something like when I would sketch out a database, like, you know, you sit down with a client, you're like, what are you doing? What are you storing? Like, what? You, know, you gotta like go through like maybe what they have and usually it's usually it's some relational thing but i remember there was some package that I, I couldn't find it like i found it one time but it was like you could like sort of type out in markdown a table skeleton it was just like real simple markdown where you'd say like here's the name of the table and then you'd like you list out the columns and you could say like a little description like this one's primary you know pk primary key this one's an integer this is a string and it, it lets you sort of add a little symbol to it that would link to another table and key and then it would render a little graph so it was like like for me, he would like write on the back of a napkin or like even do Markdown just to kind of flesh out the shape of the table. It was like, oh my God, yes, that's what I need. Because I ended up like always taking those notes and manually putting them into like Omni or or, uh, you know, Drawio or one of these things and like re- redoing all that work just to make that little... Uh, Entity-relationship diagram. It was like this was great. So there, there was some package out there, and I, I cannot for the life of me find it. But anyway, di- like looking for that and trying to reproduce that, I, I stumbled across Mermaid charts. Which in, in the interim, since I had done some of these other database designs, had like really come into its own and like offered some of these features. So it was like, yes, you could draw these lines between these things. You could work with it in in a way that you could generate these bits of text automatically from the documentation it just seemed like a really obvious thing to try to bring those two ends together
0: yeah it seems like they have their own language right which you have to kind of pick up but it doesn't seem too bad
1: it's it's not too bad there's a few things that are a little bit annoying i'm gonna i'm gonna throw some shade at python again because like everyone seems to like have this this thing where like you want to get rid of semicolons and as soon as you strip out the spaces like you do in the documentation or html page like it all goes to crap so like that some of those were optional so like You know, when you're writing this and you know it's going to get compressed, you needed to like delineate your your line breaks because those had syntactic meaning. So like some of that stuff worked fine as long as you included the semicolon. But again, not all their examples showed that. So it was like one of these things where like, had they had a better example, it would have saved me a lot of time. But in any case, it worked for that. The uh, database entity relationship diagram is sort of a newer feature, and it doesn't seem to have that support for optional semicolons. So i got to figure out a way to, to draw those ecto schemas with maintaining the line breaks so that those charts can line up still. I think there are some ways to do it. Somebody messaged me on in, uh, in a GitHub issue or something where there's a way to do it, but I haven't um, poked at it recently. For the, this is uh, for the inspecto package I published a couple months back that, that would like draw up your ecto schemas from an Elixir project.
0: Yeah, your inspector—that's the one that draws the HTML table, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I kind of left the door open to to do like a a mermaid chart, just because I knew like there might be other formats that you wanted to draw. Because my first attempts at doing the uh the mermaid chart were—I mean, one like the, it all fell apart with without the line breaks, but also. A limiting factor on that was like it it didn't provide a lot of room for doing any additional metadata about the fields, which is kind of the point. So if you just have like this is the the column name and and the column type, like, well, I need to see what the default value is. I want to have an example value, right? Like all these things to help communicate what's in that table it didn't seem to allow for that very well. So I'm hoping that that, that's something that gets iterated on.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, because I see when you have Mermaid, it's always the JavaScript one. So it's always like you have to just give them this Mermaid language and then the JavaScript will just always read it. There's nothing else. There's no way to statically do this kind of stuff.
1: You can. I had mixed results with it because you can download like, if I remember correctly, like a Docker image because they do like a command line tool where you can process it. But it just like, I don't like shoving all that extra crap into my app. Like one, like again, like I am, if I have a superpower, it is the ability for me to like follow the instructions as given and like find the one corner of the universe in which those instructions don't work. Like I am amazing at that. I will find the way to break the thing without even trying. So the the Docker, the, the CLI tool for that, I've never gotten that to work. It just puked out garbage or didn't run at all. So that's fine. I didn't really want to include it in my app anyway it was just a lot easier to say, here, reference the external, the CDN-hosted Mermaid JavaScript file You know, as soon as it's included, you just reference, like you put a a div on your page and and it's going to render whatever is in that div.
0: Okay. Yeah. And actually, I I read through your articles that you list them from top to bottom. I think I read through not all of them, but I think about half of them. They're pretty short. They're very straightforward. You got some examples, like for the MainBerry one, you got that one. I had no idea that there's like a hook that you can like add in arbitrary like HTML to your documentation. Yeah. I learned something new that way. I had no idea.
1: Yeah, you dig around in some of those things, you find the things. <laughs> I mean, some of the stuff you get helped out in the forum, because there's always somebody you know who knows more than you do. But sometimes, like the older I've gotten, the more I've like, gone into the, uh, the source code, which can kind of be a little bit scary sometimes, because it's hard to follow, depending on what it's doing. But um, yeah, I was reading up on some of the examples and the options that are there for the the documentation generation it's like oh the whole the mix projects have like a lot of these sort of rarely used features and that, that was one it makes sense if you're like generating html pages what if you need to add something to them like okay from my cms days that that made a lot of sense because you need to like oh i have a, the header area i need to add something to the head of the document you know so like it makes sense It's just it can take a while to fumble through the dark
2: hi this is charles maxwood from top end devs and lately i've been coaching some people Go to topendevs.com coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching coaching
0: i was also surprised like when i saw your docs i read it and i was like actually there was one thing that now i'm thinking about it that was a little bit weird for that was it inspecto were you i think yeah yeah it's inspecto okay so for inspecto you need to uh, okay okay sorry now it's coming to me what's going on i got a little bit confused in the docs right because it is a string in elixir but you do string interpolation and then when there that's when you just output direct html and then what you're saying before is that all HTML because HTML doesn't really matter about the white spacing, right? Right. So everything gets pushed up to one line, basically.
1: Yep. Exactly. There's a way to override that because you can you can set in your XDoc generator. I forget exactly what it is, but there's like some parameter where you could basically like inject your own interpreter. And it's just like, oh, man, like are you really gonna like hack apart the machine like and provide this separate interpreter just to omit this the spaces? I tried it out from what I remember, and it worked. It was just like, oh man this is this just feels way too clunky. It's too big of an ask like hack apart the whole way that you're generating your docs just to make this one thing work. It's like,
0: mm. now was there Be- an ex- was there any examples?
1: Oh <laughs> uh, God, was there I don't remember there may have been, and it got it to work from what I remember it's just it just was like tweaking out your I believe it is in the options for the, the app in your mixed IDXS to make it do that. And it, it just was heavy. It just felt smelly. It's like, you know what, you shouldn't need to do all this. Like I was frustrated at it. And if I'm frustrated at it, I don't want to like push that on somebody else. So there's a way to do it the more elegant way, which I haven't tried, but I think this is what somebody was getting at with the GitHub response I heard was um it was either to wrap the the bit in a code block or to like include uh triple backticks. And I think, I think because you're going through different layers of parsing, right? First, the Elixir is going to take a pass at that. And then after that page loads, it's going to make the request off to that CDN, right, where the mermaid chart is hosted. And then that's going to process what's on the page, the rendered page. It's almost like server side versus client side processing. So I think if you did the backticks, the Elixir processing would leave the spaces alone. I think it was something like that, right? And then if the spaces were. If the if the line breaks were preserved, then when Mermaid got its its fingers on it, it, it knew what to do. It was something like that.
0: I don't know. Like every time I have to configure stuff for my Elixir project using the mix file, I just feel very weird and hacky. Like I've been trying to get more and more into like into using test coverage. Mm-hmm. In order to ignore some modules, you actually have to add them to the mix file, which I feel is so annoying.
1: Do you add it to that or do you add it to like the credo? Coveralls, no, and the coveralls, coveralls, yeah,
0: yeah. No, uh, no. Actually, hold on. What am I using? Actually, I'm using just a straight mix test. As far as I can tell, they have a cover option.
1: Oh, interesting. Oh.
0: Mm, I see. Yeah. So there's a test coverage, and then yet have they have another list with ignore modules. And then another list of all the modules you want to ignore like for instance i want to ignore Uh, the repo because obviously i'm not really going to be testing the repo hmm. i want to ignore the layout view because i don't really think that's really worth it to test i mean
1: right have you have you used the 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 flags like the the tags to say like skip or module skip
0: um, is there something like that for test coverage because
3: i I, I don't know i think it's part of coveralls i'm not sure if it's part of like the mixed test coverage that you're using yeah, uh, should have yeah have ever, I,
1: yeah that's interesting I mean more broadly i th- I think there's still a lot of room for some good contributions in the elixir community for i don't I don't want to say best practices, but something in that direction. we're just like, look here's here's a way to do this thing because everyone kind of has their own patterns, but there's certain things that like everyone you know it's going to be common that people want to do things a certain way. Like one, one common thing I see over and over again is how to do the various Ecto queries because Ecto it's not active record. It's kind of upside down because of it being functional. It's not an object oriented thing, but like wrapping your head around some of the, how those macros work to construct your queries is a bit of a head trip. And in my opinion, there, there's not enough examples on how to do that. That's one problem. So I feel like that's easily rectified if someone could just, hey you've got this shape of a database this is a common pattern a one-to-many like whatever it is here's how you would search for that or like composing queries that's like always a holy grail for me Is like oh i have these things i want to apply these together like not every query is like some one-off custom thing so like why not get that sort of thing in the docs in the examples and to your point the test the way you're doing tests and test coverage is it's not that custom of a thing so like why isn't that more in your face as, as far as like ways to deal with it
0: i mean like formatter.exs like uh, that's very clear so i don't see why we can't have more of those kind of files but then, yeah. like, now you're gonna have you're gonna go back to like rails days where it's like you just crap on your hard drive is what i heard it's what's being called <laughs> where it's like you know, you create you create your rails project and it's just tons of files right yeah it's okay, so but... not create my elixir project maybe there's not tons of files but then every time want i configure something new file new file new file
1: yeah i mean it starts feeling like java or something <laughs> yeah oh, there's yeah. not a compliment right
0: i still don't understand like why is it that like all java developers they all write java but then like they always go back to gradle with groovy and like as far as i know nobody's really using groovy for anything except for that most people i think just stick to gradle with groovy i don't think there's much people
1: uh, doing i Spanish don't know especially. man like my experience with java was like one company i was at it was like augmenting like they felt like they needed another language so they, they reached for java and uh I made the horrible, horrible mistake in my sample code for the instructor of using snake case in my variables. That's all I heard, like hours about the snake case. It wasn't a damn thing about like, does this work? Was this the right structure? Like, no, it's like you guys are out of your mind. I mean, it still pisses me off. It's like such a waste. It was like, why was that? Why was that convention so sacred? The freaking variable name, like I, I got to hand it to go where it's like, oh, the format, like, well, OK, it won't compile if this is the wrong way. Like, just do it. If that's your thing, like shut up about it and and stop wasting our time because like it worked. My program worked, but God forbid it didn't have the right capitalization of the variables. You know, it, it's like <laughs> code becomes like like some battle of religion or something. The Crusades anyway so like that that was not a good Java experience and it's I don't know it's just boring if you' like nobody and anyone doing something cool is probably not using Java to do it, is my experience from the the recruitment offers and stuff I've seen I mean,
0: most programming work is not super interesting I think that's I, true that's
1: man I no absolutely true like one of the things another article I wrote recently was about how you should open source your software. And just the mental exercise was like looking at stuff and and it's like, Oh, cause everyone like any business person, you know, who doesn't code, they're going to be so precious about like, Oh God, like don't, don't share any of the stuff from our secret code base. And it's like, get over yourself, man. Like there's, this is mostly boilerplate stuff. It's, it's like the plumbing involved in like running a, the FinTech site or like a, a, porn lead gen thing like a lot of it's going to be the same you know it's like database tables and like messages and blah 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 it's a lot of the same so like realizing like open sourcing your code really just that exercise of like oh my god if we made this repo public what like what would people see and like one realization is like there's not a whole lot in the repo that's really interesting it's like there might be like some secret sauce stuff in the business logic a lot of it's data the data itself like okay here's our database structure who cares but like you don't want to like share your actual hard won data yeah so the code itself sometimes isn't that interesting so like to the extent that you can get out of the way and like just kind of get stuff in and and kind of not do that boring homework assignment of like spinning up the same stuff over and over again that's a win
3: i want to touch on that mermaid thing again one weird way i don't know if you've tried it uh, ever but like one weird way i this is like early 2021 where i try to do some something like you were doing not for ER diagram, it was for like a sequence diagram. Mm. You can send to mermaid.inc slash, I think it's image, mm-hmm. you can send an encoded string of the query, and that renders the
1: diagram. Oh, interesting.
3: Yeah. And if you just like put that as like an image in Markdown with the image tag.
1: Oh, interesting. With that
3: as a URL, the image itself gets rendered. Oh. So I had to do this because this this was like before many of the extensions and everything came out, right? So that could be yeah. a big image, right? I think you can uh, also send the size as uh, parameters. Interesting.
1: Parameters. I'm trying to remember if I saw that or I just glazed over it because one of the things that we're able to do in the diagram is you can make links in that mermaid. So you could like click, the, like go over to the module that supports that component. Right. And it was like, cool. Like doing that with an image would be I mean, not practical. But yeah, I mean, that's you interesting. You could make it a link. No, yeah, yeah, but like I'm talking about like the specific parts of it. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. Got it. But that's interesting that you could do that. I think I do remember seeing that now that you mentioned it.
3: Yeah, I think at least it was very, not very well documented. I had to guess that it was encoded based on the live editor. Yeah. But uh, I'm not sure if they've documented that now.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, this just reminds me of something recently. We kind of touched a little bit on this. Like, I got some newer people on my team. And uh, you know when you're doing Elixir, right? You don't even read the readme, especially if it's something that you've been working on for a while or you know that the README has never been updated, so you just kind of go through everything. But then if you have new team members, yeah. let's say you are you are using NPM, like now you have a new project, now it default is ESBuild, right? It doesn't talk about using NPM install, right? Because obviously they don't think you're going to be using it. Right. Then, you know, you have to say, no, 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 you have to actually go into assets and do this. Like you forget all these things. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, this is uh, iteration is key, right? Like that's your feedback loop. If you want to bring it back full circle, right? If you've got new team members, yeah. that's a really good, like, hey, I, I tried to follow this. I couldn't make it work. Like at one of my other companies, I remember like stuff was so bad. Infrastructure and documentation was so bad that I remember I just started a stopwatch. It's like we had a new guy. And I just literally just started watching my phone. I was like, how long is it going to take to get this guy up with the dev environment that's up and running? Like, how long do you think it should take? You got one repo. You got to clone that and make, like, do a change. How long should that take? Like... <laughs> (laughs) 20 minutes you know like not that long it took like several days and it's just like man like come on so like that kind of feedback i think is really useful to get the new team members because like sometimes i think the tendency is to discount somebody because of juniority or something but like everybody's got an opinion and an experience as they're coming at something and i think it's it's worthwhile to incorporate that and listen to that right it may not change the trajectory of everything but like you know enough nudges it might have a difference right like, one of my uh, whipping boys on the documentation front is Mongo. Like, we use Mongo for stuff, and their documentation is just poor, poorly conceived because they don't have a good feedback loop. So, I keep getting like survey. Like, somebody on the Mongo team is like, Will you like, we'll pay you 50 bucks for like a survey on our documents. And it's like, Yeah, I'd love it. Like, call me. Call me now. I'll talk your ear off about it. Cause like, it's never clear looking at their docs, what exactly are like you using the interface? Are you using like code? It's never clear exactly what it is and and then there's so few doc uh examples of like how to do the thing they're talking about it just makes it like such a pain to to use mongo we still use it because like it's got features that we need but the documentation is like man i don't know who came up with this but this is a hundred percent like rubbing me the wrong way
3: i think another way of like the organization and like junior engineers problem solving that is like just having organization standards like cookie cutter projects from which you clone right yeah if you haven't moved to es build Organization wide, it, it doesn't matter because they're going to use the same cookie cutter and that mm-hmm. its documentation will be up to date. And yeah, like the, there's tools like, oh, what is it called? I think it's called Shepherd that allow you to run cross repository migrations. So if you do do the Phoenix upgrade or whatever, you can run that across multiple repositories in an automated way. Interesting. And, and also update your cookie cutter. That mm-hmm. way. That's the approach we took. Like when the Phoenix library update happened in October, that was a little bit of a pain. Mm-hmm. But doing something like this, was uh in that we just have to update live in one repo and then shepherd it across the, all the repos it
1: was yeah
3: easier to manage. yeah
1: that's interesting have you you have you customized any of the uh like mixed templates like if you create a new app or uh, any... no okay
3: so when you say mixed templates you mean the templates that come with phoenix like the gen- generators
1: yeah like the generators for uh, a new app or a new phoenix app in particular
3: gotcha yeah i did that in 2018 and i just felt it was too complex to maintain doing just running a simple like keeping the app in a way such that all the dependencies can be in a separate you know all the more dynamic stuff can be in a separate dependency right and the phoenix app itself just changing the names should be enough just by running a simple shell script with final mm-hmm. place that has worked well for us It, it it works it means like the eighty twenty rule right like yeah effort yeah. takes care of most of the uh, use cases
1: yeah i feel like just observationally like elixir is kind of built with more of that like code generation in mind i mean this is kind of like the, the whole philosophy of having a macro layer like every time i have to deal with with node like the whole like webpack days and all this like transpiling like like it just screams macro to me because you're not actually writing node you're writing something that like Transpiles to node or to JavaScript or like, I don't know, like you lost me, right? But Elixir's like approach on this is like to generate code. So to me, it, that seems like the maybe preferred, I don't know, the authorized, the, the envisioned way of like achieving some of the customizations is to tweak the template and then regenerate something. Because I know like going through and like editing, if it's just like a, a module name or an app name, I'm like, yeah, fine. But if like things get kind of like nuanced, that the time to like tweak that over and over again can really add up.
3: Right. I think I can see what you're saying. And I think, again, it depends on how you kind of structure your app, right? I think we kind of try to make the our dependencies and Phoenix applications are simple enough mm-hmm. that if we use a cookie cutter, it should take care of most of the cases. Yeah, um, We generate the live view part, as I mentioned, too. Uh, all the tests, like, the, for example, in our... Uh, company, I I like running router tests so you make sure Mm -hmm. all the routes are tested and they're going to the exact controller. So all of those things, all of the uh, sandbox stuff, everything is like generated in the way it's supposed to. Yeah, there are edge cases every now and then, but they're rare enough that either by keeping the app simple and moving that complexity to a separate dependency Mm -hmm. works or just a a PR on top of that, you know, template PR, a simple, uh, short PR.
1: Yeah. I think following your gut and your instinct on, like, optimization and isolation of complexities, like, that that makes a lot of sense. I feel like the more mature a developer or an organization is, the more that you'll see a, a better, more sensible structure. And, and then the visible result is, like, each component each app whatever each repo whatever it is i think tends to get simpler because it's more focused on one thing it becomes more it becomes more reusable it's easier to document it's smaller you have to iterate on it less maybe that i don't know what you call that to me it's it's sort of like smacks of like single responsibility principle but like when that gets followed just like things get way easier
3: yeah, I mean your uh, infrastructure gets complicated. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, the code itself gets uh, easier for sure.
1: That's infrastructure is an interesting related point to this because like I've seen like plenty of smelly code in my day. I have also seen like really smelly infrastructure. Like, and I talked about this in, in one of my articles. But like the the Robert Martin book about clean code, like that was a seminal, like transformational read for me as a developer. I was like, oh this makes a, a ton of sense. Like this is what's been wrong all this time. And realizing that, that all those ideas applied not only to code, but also to infrastructure. Like I I recently did some consulting for a company and, and like they just, it was a nightmare. The infrastructure diagram was so complicated and tangled. It's like, whose idea was this? Because this cannot be the best way to solve this. And I, I probably upset some people, but you know, I I sort of crapped all over it because I think it was absolutely wrong. And I, I still think that because <laughs> I know like how easy it would have been to like solve these same problems with like a fraction of the the diagram, like the things. You didn't need like this whole sprawling, this, uh, sprawling thing. You probably could have accomplished the same thing with greater efficiency, less code, fewer developers, all that stuff if it had had some cleanliness applied to it.
3: Yeah, totally. It's It's infrastructure is like such a, beast of a conversation itself it's yeah I, I i think it's also it grows it evolves right over time like you think your app will behave a certain way three years ago and then suddenly this new project comes in like, okay great it needs to talk to only one app yeah but it also has to talk to the other apps and you don't have time to restructure applications and your infrastructure is a mess right yeah like one of the companies i'm advising these days they're, they're a crypto company that's where they're at right now. And it's the source of I would say at least forty percent of all the errors, just like one out of fifty apps in the microservice. Because yeah. like one app kind of worked that way and it's it's such a waste of time. I, I, I
1: have a special hatred in my heart for microservices because of that. <laughs> because like it's advertised as like being the solution to like whatever isolation, right. single responsibility principle, all this like glorious stuff. But in reality, I, I feel like it's a it's like an escape patch. For some like like parasitical development practices, where like you didn't handle things correctly in your main app, so like you all jump into this escape pod and spin up a microservice, but guess what? Like that thing's just as infected as the original because like you never dealt with the problems of communication, or, like like having sensible application boundaries, like all that stuff, like that's hard and if you don't really like roll up your sleeves and have a uh, willingness to deal with it and most organizations don't because right in my experience business people don't want to hear about it like they want to make money or increase profits but like they want to do that with something sexy instead of like hey if you rewrote this app or like got rid of all this crap like you'd require like a fraction of the of the code and developers and infrastructure like that's not as sexy of a proposition unless somebody's like trying to clean up optics for like a stock evaluation or something and it's frustrating cuz it's just like man there's there's an easier way to do it and i'll even tie it back to like to really give you a throwback like the evolutionary stuff right like nature optimizes for energy efficiency right if you've got like a organism that's like inhabiting a certain ecological niche and it can like get its food and reproduce with less energy it's going to have a clear advantage over some other creature in that same Or a competing niche that requires more energy. So, like, if you're able to do that in code, I don't think that's a crazy uh, calculation to make and say, like, yeah, this is this is going to be superior. I mean, like, our AWS bill right now—it's crazy. Like, we're like almost embarrassed by how small it is, (laughs) because like we have a very just straightforward infrastructure. It's like you just look at it and go, oh, I get it. There's nothing. There's nothing to explain. Nothing to document. You don't need a chart. It's that simple. And it's like, I know it can be done. And it's like, man, like I I keep this is the perennial question. You could have a whole podcast just about this. But like, how do you avoid getting like stuck in that cul-de-sac trying to get out of, of like that app that kind of went off the rails through whatever the industry changed, the developers screwed up, what or anything in between? Like, how do you keep that? thing in motion so you don't get bogged down that, that is like that is really the art the the ninja skill of coding that's just so yeah. so hard to grasp
3: totally agree one of my favorites did you talk about microservices one of my favorite bad microservices stories is when the number of microservices is like five to ten times the number of engineers <laughs> that, that's just like, i mean yeah <laughs> I, <laughs> yep yeah i to, Honestly,
1: I've seen microservices abused more than I've seen them like, help an organization. And that's like that. That's, Same here. It just gives me like acid reflux just thinking about that. It's like, uh, what's the, uh, oh man, the the law where like uh, an organization's uh, code eventually takes on the shape of that organization's communication. You know, you know what I'm talking about? It's one of these, I'm terrible at quotes, but yeah.
3: Oh yeah, I know. I forget which one it was.
1: Conway's Law or something. Yeah. Cause like if you have trouble like communicating between like business and engineering or like between the product people and like that other area, it's like, yeah, that shows up in the code where you just have these like crazy walls. And like it's like talking about like wasting time writing boilerplate. It's like microservices, it's that so much boilerplate to like set up your HTTP request responses or your GPC or like whatever your, your remote RPC stuff. Like all that stuff is like, Oh, that's fine if like you. Re- there really is a good benefit out of it, but like too many times I've seen that like, it's just not a good use of, of people's time. And it, it increases like the the load of like having to write the documentation, the tests, the the QA, the all, like all that stuff just expands. Yeah. And if there's not a good justification for it, man, you're just like increasing the inefficiency of that and making it so much harder to deploy and maintain. Like try doing an integration test on a microservice architecture. Like have fun with that. Yeah. It's a nightmare. I found myself like really gravitating back to like the monolithic application, because if you structure that well, and I think Elixir does this really well. You can like scale because you can pass messages across nodes. It sort of like gives you this thing for free where you can like develop these things more in isolation. And like that to me, like even getting like SQS out of the picture was like a huge win we could just like spin up an entire, well previously had been like multiple applications having to talk to each other. And then we had to like reset Amazon and like go get coffee and wait while the queue's drained. And then like come back and poke at it. That, that was a relatively simple connectivity between different parts of the of the applications. Like even that was a pain in the ass. As soon as we pulled that out, like we were able to spin up the whole thing at once easily on like just a laptop running Docker, like not even that efficiency. And like we could test everything, soup the nuts, like, everything on it It was like man that is a huge win so there there wasn't any like dark spots of the app or we're like well that message went off to some microservice and we're we're pretty sure it like did what it was supposed to but actually we don't know like that never was a good answer for me
3: totally yeah i've not seen i'm yet to see or hear of a pre-seed or pre-series a startup that went microservices and became successful
1: that's interesting (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I have either. <laughs> anyway, it sounds good on paper, but like to talk about documentation with that, it's just it's it's a pain.
0: Yeah, speaking of microservices, like you said, how do how do you document? Like, okay, you guys send. It's so hard to document. Like you said, from like I just always think about that video where they're trying to explain how they cannot get like a the name of somebody in a web page or something. It's like there was a server called Bingo because Bingo is your name, oh. Do you remember this video? Have you seen it?
1: Oh, uh, I don't know if I've seen
0: this. Adi, have you seen this video before? No, I haven't. Uh, it's really crazy. Like they spend like forever trying to explain to a product manager why they cannot get some kind of information about somebody because they have fifty different microservices. It's very crazy. But like writing documentation to say, okay, if you want this piece of information about somebody, it's stored in this document over here or this database over here. How do you show the flow? That's like really difficult to yeah.
1: show. Oh yeah. So this is actually setting me off on another tangent. But like one of the things that's interesting with with that is that doc, the UML diagrams, they suck. Like they do not fulfill their purpose when it comes to software. This is an article I've been meaning to write, but just so simple. It's like, you don't know when two entities are, are connected. In traditional UML diagrams, you don't know if one thing is pushing or pulling, you know, there's a connection, but you don't see who's instigating it. The whole thing becomes impossible to follow because you're always guessing like, is that audience left stage, right? I don't know. You don't see it. Like it's a fundamental flaw in my opinion of the the UML diagrams. And it shows up so badly in these microservices where it's like, well, how do I get from here to here? Like what happens when this goes down? Is that like a, who cares it'll just keep on rolling or is it like or is that gonna like bring the whole system down it's not clear because you don't see like the push and the pulls. You don't see who's initiating any of those uh, events.
3: I think that's a huge amount of sequence diagrams. Like that kind of it kind of follows the kind of the journey. The, yeah, the journey if you're mapping out the data um, over UML diagrams.
1: Yeah, I think you have to go. That's the only reasonable solution there is right now. Yeah, is like have that c- sequence diagram. I, I do feel like there is a place for like this. Like, this is this is like a, a rant, a, a threat, a promise. I don't know <laughs> to like write write another article about how these UML diagrams are broken i think if you just have like a simple like a new arrow or something where you could look at it and go oh i see what it's doing and then you could just like touch up all your existing diagrams and just see like okay cool these are connected i see that this thing is initiating that right it's just yeah. like like understanding like if you swapped out sns for sqs like the diagram looks the same but the, the way your system would fail and operate completely different right like we don't see that, and that just really hinders it. So, like that's, I think that's another um maybe nail in the microservice coffin. Uh, maybe not that far, but it, it just makes all that stuff harder to see, and you just it, it puts a lot more work on you as the developer to have to like clarify that. And to me, that's like you're barking up the wrong tree, man. If you have to do all that stuff, you're not coding, and you're not improving the product. You're sort of like lost in the weeds. Yeah. The other, the other thing with this is, is um I've really become a fan more and more of the red green deployments. Right? Like I wrote a, a recent article about. Uh, the myth of small incremental changes and unexpectedly, like it really blew up. Like that's been like my most popular medium article by far. I, I guess it really resonated with people, but the whole notion of like, Oh, you can only get there by like making these small changes. I just think it's, it's wrong. Like, I don't know if this is like really, really a tangent or a complete diversion from the documentation side, but the the whole conversation on microservices like reminds me like sometimes like it is totally acceptable to throw the baby out with the bathwater and just like really have a, here's the new thing. Like we, 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 tried this thing one way and it had some successes, it it might be a useful point of comparison, but like, I don't think there's any shame or harm in just throwing that out. And like, so look, here's the 2.0 completely different. If you have like properly scoped some things and you have some, like I, some way to like get visibility on, on the higher test, Ability, like the see what's coming out the other end, like man, yeah, like that. Those have been the easiest code deployments in my experience. Is just like when we weren't trying to increment our way out of something. Instead of just going, you know what, this sucks. We're pulling the plug and just like rewrite it.
0: Okay, I feel like we can go on and on and on about what pisses us off. And uh, yeah,
1: that's <laughs> <even> better. <laughs> that's, that's my mo, man. That's like, get another thing. Hey, one thing, I can... Alan.
3: Uh, mm-hmm. Since since you brought up the microservices and like the data flow, like one way of like mapping out or like documenting is actually using your distributed tracing logs, if you have that set up, right, just source and destination, and then use existing paths to draw out all the sequence diagrams using the logs, right? That's, like, a good way of, like, because, you know, you don't necessarily have to do it before. As you have real data, you have the services running for, like, a few months. You have real, you know, data that you can use to draw the sequence diagrams and hopefully try to explain that to the project manager.
1: (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah, I'd like to see that.
0: I mean, I guess it depends on how you architect your system, right? But the, like there are some systems where you have one single endpoint and pending which fields that you want, they could spread out to several different services. For sure. Now, how do you document that? Okay, like like GraphQL, right? If, okay, if I want this, if I want the guy's name, if I want the guy's address or right. definitely credit card, that's going to be stored in different databases at least. Mm-hmm. Maybe even different styles, right? How do you document saying, okay, this field's gonna to go to here and all like this kind of stuff? Because yeah, it may happen that one of them goes down and you don't really know which one because you have fifty different databases or services hooked up to one endpoint. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you request certain ones and you need and you need to know like why it's going down, right? Then that's, yeah, a that's
1: one use case. That's a really good example. That's I don't think that's at all hypothetical, right? I mean, this is like there's
0: federated uh, GraphQL is a big one, right? Where they somehow they actually have it so you have one endpoint and then now actually go off to several more GraphQLs, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. Have you seen that before?
1: We did something similar. I mean, it's not really a stretch if you've done an API gateway, because that's kind of what GraphQL can be is like an API gateway where like it gets it and it splits off the thing. And if you have it sort of load balanced or something in a federated setup, like makes sense, makes total sense. How do you document that? I think just to kind of bring it full circle, um, there are all these things that frustrate us, right? And there's things that like, it's unclear. I think it it is a useful exercise to try to document and clarify that upfront. And if that's like on a chalkboard at the back of the room or or like in a document where you can like sketch it out, like this is how this could look. If you could look at it and it makes sense on that diagram, I think that is a not necessarily a, a, a pass, for like that's the way you should build it. But that I think, can push you in that direction because sometimes the opposite is is like if it's like hard to follow and you can't see what it's doing sometimes that's very much a red flag and sometimes you realize that after the fact you're like i knew this this never made sense and maybe it's like a six months or a year later where you're like ah here's where here's where it finally came clear to me like why that wasn't the way to do it so in other words documentation is important as in it like i think it it teaches you as much as it is a instrument to teach others it kind of like is a mirror back and can help confirm or or uh, disprove certain notions you have about your software
0: but i think that's another kind of good point is like i think we keep talking about like how we should document something but the but i think the really the only real answer there is is if people look at this thing and understand it then that's good Mm. enough it's like going back to the old agile days right you have like your cocktail napkin with your design and you're like okay i got it let's do it i can build this yeah. Just and, enough and makes it very clear.
1: Yeah. And that's enough. That's enough. Like, and that feedback loop is going to, like, sort of, you'll iterate on that, right? Or if you could say, okay, cool. I got it. I'm going to add another thing here, or like, here's a new cocktail napkin, whatever that is. And that's the conversation that I think makes sense. And it has the anal- analogs in the natural world, which I think is a, is a point in its direction.
0: Except for if you have the ISO committee coming over to see if you're actually ISO compliant right? <laughs> with the cocktail napkins, that's a problem.
1: Yeah. There.
0: Yeah, I think we we've had a really great session, right? I think that we can go on, like I said, for forever and ever. Is there any other points you wanted to kind of make? uh Maybe first ask Adi, so I don't uh, leave him hanging. Adi, you know
3: anything? <laughs> uh, no. Well, I guess one thing, just I think we briefly touched on it very early on that Elixir doc tests allow you to make kind of ensure that the documentation is up to date, somewhat, right? To At least like quantifies it in some way. I think one of one of my one of the things I try to do when I generate documentation is try to find a programmatic way to make sure it's up to date. At least have like a a, 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 at least have like a simple git diff, right? Like a document documentation generator run a git diff. If there's a change, CI breaks saying hey something changed, right? Something simple like that to make sure at least it's uh, as up to date as you can you're trying to make
1: it yeah good I, I always leave room for that comb through like that like i remember grad school like doing my thesis was like that scary thing after you've like printed it off and you're like reading through it and make sure it like reads well i mean that just makes for such a nicer handoff down the line but that that takes some time so yeah. i kind of reserve that for like a major version but like investors or internal folks need to see it, new hires, like all that stuff, it, it just, it saves a lot of time. It, it's it's like an ounce of prevention versus a pound of cure.
0: Now, is there any kind of last points maybe you want to make about documentation before we head over to PICs?
1: I feel like I could rant forever about different things, but I, I think we've covered some good ground. I mean, the the sort of orbiting points that are not necessarily related to documentation or or sort of like about how development fits into the bigger picture like what are things we can do as developers to help improve the world right if you want to take a a really sky view of the thing because a lot of crises is going on right now a lot of big things and and sometimes like staring at my computer doesn't seem like the most productive way to spend my time when we have you know climate in crisis we have you know government in crisis (laughs) like there's lots of stuff that could deserve our attention so you know if we could at least make software more simple to use and, and like free up people's time and, and make it sort of a, a known controllable space i feel like that that's a win so it might seem simple but it's like a small thing that we have control over is our coding environments
0: great um, let's transition us over to
2: picks. hey folks if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages then you're in luck we're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after christmas 2020 without the ads Signing up will help us pay for editing and production and you can go sign up at devchat.tv/premium.
0: Adi, I know you got something who's hiring this week?
3: <laughs> Actually, I have a couple candidates this time, senior Elixir engineers, both have been like working for with Elixir since before 1.0. They're a little picky uh, about where they want to work at so but yeah if, if you guys feel like you have you need some of the best engineers Elixir engineers in the world. Reach out to me. They're literally, yeah, two of the best engineers I've worked with. Better than me, much better than me. And yeah, anyone really lucky to have them. So that's the job side. One pick I have is a Grafana on-call. I've been playing with that as like an on-call, uh, kind of a pager duty replacement for one of the startups I'm advising. It's actually... So much easier to set up than PagerDuty. The interface is a lot more intuitive. And yeah, the templates and all that stuff allow you to set up on call schedules really easily. And it's free. You can literally just like Docker pull uh, or deploy to Heroku in like five minutes and run it on the free Heroku infrastructure without, and, and it'll sustain a team of 50, 60 engineers. So check out Grafana
0: on call. It's awesome. Okay. And I'm going to do my pick and then I'm going to leave it with our guest the best guests we've had so far of today. So my pick is uh, MJML, right? So I think one of the most difficult parts about making email templates is like handling all these different weird edge cases. And there's this language called MJML. Or MJML, sorry. Uh, I'm not too sure what it actually stands for. It probably mail something. I don't even see them actually ever spelling out what MJML actually stands for. But it's a special kind of language. Uh, there's a plugin for, sorry, there's a hex library for Elixir. Built in Rust that I use all the time. And all I do is just take my template, I pass in MGML. I use EEX, not HEX. So just EEX. I first run it through EEX and then I run that through uh, the MGML compiler. And out pops an email with tons of HTML tables inside, ready for any Outlook browser out there. So it works great. I uh, highly recommend it. if you're going be work with HTML emails, definitely work with something like that I think is much better than working with directly with uh, HTML itself because it's a pain to make these things work across Outlook and everything else. Griffiths. How about you?
1: Yeah, one of the things I was looking at this past week was uh, language detection. We're sort of getting into like international stuff. so I came across a library called Passa PAASAA and it's in hex. I, I did a uh, fork and a pull request, and the and the author like merged it immediately. So it's it was pretty cool just to dust it off and get it up to date because I hadn't had an update in about a year. But you give it text and it'll detect what language it is, or you could give it a, or uh, it'll give a list of what it thinks they are and a probability score. It's just been super useful in in determining uh, multilingual content. And I wrote a um, companion to that just to integrate the uh, ISO uh, 639 language codes to interpret that. So you can see uh, the, the two-character or the three-character codes for any standardized ISO language. And then uh, just randomly, I'll throw out, I've been reading Barbara Tuchman's uh, The Guns of August, getting up on my uh, World War I history, which has been kind of a fascinating <laughs> left-field education about the, the lead-up into uh, global conflicts uh, now over 100 years ago. But it's, it's just interesting getting my head into what the world was like. Uh, that long ago and kind of an interesting break from from coding but i'll throw it out there
0: okay great well it's again it's uh, great to have you on uh, i believe you said you were here about a year ago so it's good to have you back and obviously you're welcome back right we'll definitely be keeping in touch
1: and yeah thanks that, thanks alan and thanks uh, Hadi. Thank you. it's been a pleasure chatting
0: and with that we are out
1: bandwidth for this
2: segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn